Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Here today with us is Jeff Hull. He's an author, an educator, a consultant, and a coach extraordinaire. He has written the book most recently, Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. And we're going to talk with Jeff today about what he means by changing world and what he means by leadership and what the art and science is. So Jeff, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us about the changing world. What, what's changing in this world that you reference in the book? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are huge macro changes taking place everywhere around us. But I think probably the, the, the changes that I'm referring to in the book that were inspiring me to write the book are about the organizational landscape and the emergence um, into leadership roles of an incredibly diverse population of leaders that we wouldn't have really seen maybe as recently as 10 years ago. You know, the rise of, obviously everyone knows there are more women in leadership roles, um, but people of color, people from all over the world, really a multicultural growth in leadership and in organizations. So there's that huge disruption that's taking place. Um, Parallel that with the flattening of organizations. You know, the old pyramids have been tumbling down and they've been reinvented as holacracies and all sorts of other parent permutations. Wait, but, what was that term? Holacracies? Yeah, I think. What's they a holacracy? Uh, that's that um, completely flat organization. Zappos was one of the first to try it. A completely flat organization that's run more like by a constitution of teams. But, you know, it's a variation of a flatter, more networked, more collaborative um, organization in general. So you have those major disruptions that I think are pretty uh, much flooding the landscape. And then I think that the uh, expectation of the style of leadership, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, has fundamentally shifted in the last few years. And I know that's part of what uh, led me to want to write this book and do the research. I'm sure you're seeing it as a, you know, in all of the work you're doing as an executive coach, there's just been a huge shift in the expectations of leaders and what it means to be effective in a leadership role. Um, well, it's interesting. I'm curious about the idea of the expectations of leaders. And when you say that, whose vantage point you're thinking of? Meaning, who is it that's expecting a difference in leadership? I would say it's coming at, <laughs> coming at them from all sides. Uh, you know, depending upon the size of the organization, whether it's a startup or even if it's a Fortune 500 company, uh, there's pressure from the top, from the boards, um, and from the stakeholders, the buyers, the consumers of services and products to diversify, um, to have more sensitivity to minorities, people of color, women, people. There's a globalization of organizations, so there's the external pressure. Um, I was just on the phone this morning with a head of Asia for a, a Wall Street firm talking about 
you know, the Americans need to really get their act together and understand cultural differences and be respectful and humble about the way they interact. So it's like this whole different conversation. It would, 10 years ago, it probably would have been, well, we're sending a bunch of American expats to run your division in China. Well, that's not going to happen anymore. So there's that external shift. Um, and then probably fundamental is the bubbling up right? The bubbling up of millennials and the expectation of the next generation of workers. And there's been a lot of research and writing that's been done about that. Yeah. You say some at some place in the book, we're all millennials. Yeah. I mean, and I did that very pointedly. It's very early on. <laughs> um, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, I don't want to take away from the fact that there are demographic differences. I think that's well known and well studied. But what I do want to do is point out how that may not serve us very much to put people into categories. Because first of all, it leads to stereotyping and generalizations. And I've worked with millennials that are as competent, as overachieving, as driven, as any boomer, uh, maybe even more. So, you know, they, they, and then if you add to that, that we're all using the technology. You know, even my mother is on Facebook. It's like, so even traditionalists are on Facebook, they're using social media, we're all networked, we're all using the new apps. Now, it may be true that younger folks are more savvy with that technology, but the organizations are all using it. They have internal apps, they have networking apps. So the idea that the millennials are more tech savvy, well, maybe it's true, but we're all, we are all dealing with the 24 hour workplace, right? We're all dealing with the technologically networked we're all dealing with um, the pressures of achievement and time management. So I just find the millennial distinction, uh, sometimes it's a bit overwrought. Right, great, I agree with you. Um, I'm gonna ask you to define two more terms really quickly and then we're gonna jump okay. into some meat. What is the post-heroic leader? <laughs> yeah, so there's a good nice research jargon for you, right? Well. It's well, actually, also, I think the reason I'm asking is because a lot of people have talked about this shift from like command and control to, right. and I'm wondering what, like what you're adding to that part of the conversation. Right. Well, first of all, I don't want to take credit for that phrase because it's actually in the literature. There's a lot of researchers that have done what they call studies of the post-heroic framework or characters. Um, so I stole it from them. Um, but, but what it points to is the idea that, uh, you know, the white knight leader who's going to come in on the horse and save us, uh, which is what we see in every Avengers movie. Um, you know, that, that paradigm is really dissembling and that, you know, what's, what's meant I think by post heroic is moving into a new paradigm and not that we don't all deserve to be heroes. And we'll still need heroes, we'll still need heroines. Uh, but the idea that the leader is this one-stop shop for your solution. Um, you know, we have Steve Jobs, we have all these icons, and that, that will continue to be true. I mean, America and everyone, there are icons that will rise. But that as the exclusive paradigm of leadership, I think, is on the way. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction, too, that there are some, you know, d there's different cultures and different organizations and that there are some organizations that are still really reliant on this heroic leader and it actually works for them. And there's right. other organizations that, that and there's certainly there's organizations that get caught up in it and get in trouble because of it. And there's organizations that that don't. And the other thought that I've had recently is, you know, there's this sense that all this pressure is on the heroic leader to, right. you know, be that white knight. But 
I also think, and you, you sort of address this, or you know, your book is all about this in some ways, that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the post-heroic leader to not be a heroic leader. Exactly. And, and that's not easy. That's not like we're not acculturated to, you know, to be this other kind of leader. So, okay, one last totally. definition. Um, and here's the doozy of them all. How are you defining leadership? <laughs> Yeah, that is a doozy because uh, you know there are multiple great definitions out there, and I could I could read you one of my favorites and then not take credit for it, right? Um, I mean, for me personally, leadership is about creating a space. It's about creating an environment where the universal we becomes a personal we. In other words, it's a a dynamic in which a group of people, could be two people, could be 100 people, could be 50,000 people, but they are able to come together in a space of creativity and kind of an adventure leading to creating something new in the world. You know, and, they, and it's very much my world about a we dynamic, not an I dynamic. So. And if you were to identify like a central thing that you're adding to the conversation with Flex, Right, because there's so much has been. I've written about leadership. You've written. There's a lot that's been written about leadership. If you were to identify like the central thing you want to make sure, or you're hoping to add to this conversation about leadership, what would it be? Well, yeah, that's a great question because I, I mean, I've read your book and it's incredibly in alignment with mine. Um, I mean, I think they really a beautiful song together. But I think what I'm looking to do, I, I would call it the new leadership agility. Um, or maybe the next level of situational leadership. I was on a podcast the other day and someone said to me, what you're, what you're saying reminds me a lot of Ken Blanchard's um, situational work from the 80s. And I, you know, is it new, is it different? And, I, and what I said is I'm very much in that lineage. So it's not in contrast, it's not against that by any means. But I think to the earlier questions you asked me about what's new in the landscape of leadership, there's another level of agility that's required, and it's really high pressure, which is to be agile in the moment, not just like from one year to the next, but literally from moment by moment and day to day. And what does it take, as I like to describe, to be able to move from an alpha energy to a beta energy, which is a receptive energy to a proactive, a directive, and what does it take to do that all in one day? What does it take to be empathic in the afternoon and authoritative in the morning. I mean, that's a new level of agility. So I think that's what I'm trying to get at. With right. I love that. And you're not saying, and, and you've, you've said this a couple of times in this conversation so far, you're not saying, you're not actually saying we're in a post-heroic leadership world, I think. But, you know, you may disagree with me, but I don't think you're saying that. I think <laughs> what you're saying is we are in a heroic leadership world and a post-heroic leadership world. And, you know, like there, you're, yeah. you're, you're not saying we were that and now we're this. You're saying who we have to be as leaders by definition needs to be inclusive of much more than what we thought leadership was maybe 30 years ago. And it's Absolutely. not that we moved from one to another, but we've added tools to the toolkit of what it means to be able to lead. I would say everything you just said is absolutely true and – <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the reason I say that is that um, on the one hand, I was very clear because there are other books that do a bit of this trash the alpha kind of energy. Um, and I was very clear in my book that that was not my intention. Right. It's not about taking down the, her the heroic leader or that that's the doom. 
So I'm very much in sync with what you just said. But I would also add, and I would probably say, and I would also add. Right, because you're a coach. Know, yeah, exactly. Um, I would say there is a movement toward a more collaborative, consensus-driven, inclusive um, style of leadership. And the reason for that is because of all the things I mentioned at the outset. And then I would add to it, there's a desire on the part of many organizations to have greater levels of innovation these days. Creativity is becoming the huge key distinction that's gonna help. So creativity requires being able to hear from everyone. And that's where the beta, the beta energy is really valuable. You know, so. it's interesting because I know an organization where um, they really are this, you know, kind of environment where there's no leaders, everything's, t everything's self-operating teams. And even the way the teams get assembled is, you know, not with leadership. And, Which and, can be very problematic. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and actually what happens, you know this organization too, but what happens is, what I find happens is that de facto, either there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity or de facto this non-leadership culture ends up becoming a very um, almost fascistic leadership culture because when, when groups and teams have no leadership in them and don't make decisions, everything rolls up and the final decision gets made by the person who's running the company. And it's like, the, it's almost this juxtaposition or it's this, you know, it's kind of the irony of leaderless teams, which is that they end up defaulting to oftentimes a single leader who's, you know, holds the purse strings and calls the shots. Yeah, I totally agree. And I am uh, very aware of that. There's like that risk factor when you, when you take away the pyramid or you take away some of the hierarchy. And I would say that part of that is a transition phase in our culture. Like there are very few people that are mature, self-aware, emotionally courageous. That, that's what it takes to step up and lead. And if you're going to have an environment where you're asking everyone to step up and lead, the level of emotional courage is multiplied, right? And unfor unfortunately, there are very few organizations that are really ready for that. Um, and in fact, that gets back to, I think, one of the core themes in your book and also one of the core themes in mine, which is we all have to learn how to coach ourselves. Right. You know, we need to look at of the ability to develop feedback loops, right, right, to have self-awareness be really core to your growth, and you you write about that, and I write about that. We do it in a little different ways, but that way we may ultimately get to a place where we could have a leader full team, not a leader less team. Okay, yeah. so let's get into some of the meat of the book. You break it up into mental leadership, emotional leadership, and somatic leadership, and you have your fierce model, which fits into each of those categories. And why right. don't you give us a brief overview of like mental, emotional, somatic? And I'm very happy to see you writing about somatic because you don't, you know, you hear people talk about mental and emotional, but somatic is often not a part of the picture. So I just kind of want to, you know, super briefly just talk about each of those and let's go into sort of fierce. Great. Yeah. I mean, it was extremely important to me to make as explicit as possible that there are core energies that lead to effective leadership. And only one of them is cerebral. You know, there's a chapter in my book called We Are More Than a Brain on a Stick. You know, in our culture, that is where we tend to go. Right. And that's, I think, part of the reason why you wrote your book is like the, being able to connect with your feelings, being able to regulate them, being able to express them. It takes courage. It takes awareness. I wanted to be explicit that that's core to the energy of effective leadership. 
Rational, yes, of course. Emotional, yes, of course. And then the third of the sort of triumvirate is recognizing that your presence is a physical presence, always. The body comes along with you whether you like it or not. So integrity, trust, behavior, all of eye contact, what you're doing, you know, I'm moving my hands too much right now. So, you know, it's like that. It's very granular and how we show up in our physical energy is really key to your success. So, so that was why I wanted to make sure that we covered those three dimensions. So I want to start with them backwards because first of all, I okay. want to make sure that we get to somatic. And, and second of all, I, I, I also think that I, I want to take what's often uh, demeaned as the least important and, and actually uh, highlighted as the most important because I think it's most missing. So, so does that work for you, by the way? Because I know I there's a structure. It. Okay, great. Totally love it. So let's go into somatic. And you break it up into sort of collaboration and engagement. And, and also, you, it's interesting because somatic, you know, I really think of somatic as the physical body. And, and, you know, I do some somatic coaching around, you know, with core energetics and, 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 and almost energy work. And if that's super woo woo to people, as soon as you say energy (laughs) work, it's like super woo woo. And yet someone walks in a room and you could feel it. And the question is, what is it that you're feeling? Right. Or someone walks in the room and you don't even notice. And the question is what's going on. And so. And, you know, someone's angry and you can feel. So there's like no doubt that from, a, you know, you know, on a, on a basic level, we all have an experience of, you know, whatever you want to call it. But I'm going to call it kind of the energy aspect of it and the physical sensing aspect of it. And uh, and and then and you also talked about, you know, trust and integrity as going into this category. So I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts around that. Well, no, I completely agree with you. And I think that, um, you know, one of my colleagues the other day who just finished reading my book, she said to me, Jeff, why did you wait until you got to collaboration and engagement before you talked about somatic? Um, and And I said to her, well, first of all, that was somewhat arbitrary because, of course, every aspect of your presence is somewhat somatic. Right. But when it came right down to it, as a leader, when you collaborate, you're not alone anymore. When you make a decision, you could be alone. When you're having a feeling, you could be alone. Not always, but when you're collaborating, you can't be alone. Although arguably when you're having a feeling, that's, t- that's almost entirely somatic. I mean, emotional is almost entirely right. somatic. But I was just talking, you're absolutely right, which is why it is somewhat arbitrary. But I guess what I was trying to get at is the somatic component of your leadership starts to be crucial when you're collaborating and when you're engaging. You know, I mean, I get so frustrated with people that simplify this theme of engagement. Like we need to recognize our employees. We need to have a best friend at work. Yeah, exactly. All of which is true. So it's not that that's not valuable. But if you walk into a room and start recognizing people with your eyes sort of half open and glazed and your body's just sort of turned and you're like, oh, oh, yeah, Mary. Yeah, Mary. Like people are not going to feel recognized. It's all about your physicality the energy. So that's why that became so important in those dimensions. So I'm curious about how you approach that in organizations, because I think I think there's a safety in talking about it as collaboration and engagement, right? It's like a little bit safer because those Maybe. are very accepted terms in organizations and people could talk. You can about also them. give examples. Yeah. With, yeah. Well, and that's what I'm curious about. I'm curious about, you know, there's there's a way in which in organizations 
in organizational life, I should say, your body is your own. So like I could talk to you about the way you think. I could talk to you about the way you speak. I could talk to you maybe even in a risky way about the way you wear your emotions on your sleeve and that might impact it. But to actually talk to someone in an organization, and I'm not, I mean, we're sort of privileged, you and I, in that when, when people bring in a coach or they work with coaches, they tend to be more open to this. But when you're talking right. to leaders, right, because right? this book is really written for leaders, and you're talking to leaders, and we're telling them, you know, not only your body, but the bodies of the people who work for you, they're part of the equation. And there's a lot of politics to talking about the body in organizations, and it's difficult on a lot of different levels. So I'm right. curious how you coach people to, um, you know, as leaders of leaders even, how, how to help people um, and, and how to talk about your people's bodies and the way they show up in the world physically, um, how to do that in an organizational setting where it might be difficult. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It is challenging. And what I typically do is sort of gauge the level of safety, right? Because it varies. Some people are very open to it. And they're like, oh, I, I read an article that, you know, 80% of communication is nonverbal. So give me some feedback. You know, some people are very open to it right away. Others are kind of like, woo, woo, what are you talking about? So it varies. But I would say my rule of thumb is start from the outside in and then from the inside out. And by that, I mean, and you'll see this in the book, if you remember about engagement, I had sort of a, a concentric circles of engagement. And sometimes I start from the outside and move in, and sometimes I start from the inside and move out, depending upon the receptivity of the person that I'm working with. But the overall gestalt or context is that people are usually comfortable with discussing the environment. So I'll say to them, what was the environment that you created in that brainstorming session? Where did you hold it? What, what time of day? How many people were in the room? How did you set up the space? Did you sit in a circle? Did you have tables in front of you blocking each other? Or did you take the, take, take the tables out and be fit, sitting directly across from each other? Did you go outdoors? Did it cross your mind to maybe take the whole group out, outside to sit in a circle? And people look at me like, what? What are you talking about? I'm not going to do that. You know? But that gets them starting to think about the energy of this space. What is your intention? Your intention is to have engagement and commitment and, and innovation and creativity. Well, the energy matters. And so then if they're like open to that idea, like thinking about that, preparing for the space, preparing for the time, you know, uh, like in the old days when we used to take groups off for retreats, well, why did we do that, right? I mean, there's a reason why people go on outdoor kinds of things. So I get them into that conversation and then move them towards the inside. Like, okay, now that you've discussed the space, well, who is in the space? My eight people are in the space. Well, how do they all show up? Are they on their phones? Are they distracted? Do you allow them to all bring computers? Do you sit around a table with eight computers so that everybody's looking at a screen? You know, you can see you go further and further towards the individual and eventually, how do you show up? So that's- And do you get to a point where you say to someone, look, everything about your- um, where you might say to them, are you angry? Because your body is reading angry. Like you appear angry. Is that your intention? Like, is that what's really going on? Is that what you want to project? 
and they might go, what are you talking about? Now I'm angry. I wasn't angry before, but now I'm angry. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, and, and, you know, you might talk to them about kind of what you're seeing in their body. You might ask them what they're feeling in their body. Do you get to that point in the coaching? Absolutely. Yeah. If you remember, there's a case study in my book where there was a disconnect between the CEO from the neck up, uh, who was very confident. And then he's like shaking his legs. Uh, and it was crazily consistent. Like it always happened. And I finally, I mean, the, the one distinction between the way you articulate it would be, I said, I would use the pronoun I, like I would share my experience. I, I just, at this moment, I just have to let you know that what you're doing with your legs is actually making me nervous. And so he was like, what, how could I be making you nervous? And I'm like, well, let me explain to you how it's landing on me. So that, you know, he was still a little bit defensive, but I didn't say you, I basically said I'm experiencing, but I have had clients cause you, you know, I've had leaders who have that dynamic with some of their staff, like chef, how do I tell the people on my team that they need to pay attention and not look at their phones? You know, how do I tell them without coming across like I'm bossy you know, so that, that, that issue definitely does come up more and more these days. Okay, give us a sentence or two on the emotional. You talk about his emotional intelligence and realness. And, you know, there's obviously an echo to our conversation just now and, and uh, you know, the somatic piece and the emotional. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, they all overlap. So in some ways, some of these categories can be a bit arbitrary, but it was really just for simplicity's sake, for being able to focus on particular domains. But I would say that the key here is that agility of recognizing that the value of expressing, being with, which you write about, having courage to incorporate the emotional component of the experience that people are having, it just creates a more real, authentic experience for you as a leader and for your team. And that is sort of antithetical to what we consider to be sort of the traditional alpha style leader who's more stoic and who sort of keeps the emotions out of it. Um, So developing what, again, my theme is you don't have to become an emotional basket case. You don't have to become dramatic. Right. But you have to start to recognize that those things are happening in the background all the time anyway. Right. And being more open, being more human, being more trusting of yourself and of others, which takes courage, which is your theme, right, is what creates that sense of safety and connection. So it does look like maybe being a little more emotional or being a little more vulnerable and coming to see that as a strength. Right. I also often talk about, you know, there's this huge distinction between what you're willing to feel and what you do about it, right? Like I could feel very emotional without necessarily expressing emotion. I'm not repressing it. I'm willing to actually feel it. But the impact I want to have would suggest that I probably shouldn't share it in that moment. So there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's making, and you go, you know, you talk about that in terms of, of the mental piece, which is the flexibility and the intentionality and like being flexible about what you do with it and being intentional and, and also recognizing the difference between intention and impact. Totally. Yeah. I mean, again, it's about being this, this, what I'm calling sort of the new level of agility is being able to recognize the value of moving how you show up literally minute by minute, day by day. Right. Um, and I, I think it's an aspiration for all of us. I'm not by any means saying that even as a coach, I'm able to do it. Um, but you know, it is sort of the, it is a very, um, classic outcome of mindfulness. 
you know, the more the more present you are, the more awake you are, the more you're going to be able to be flexible and respond in a lot of different ways. So they all go together. And to me, I always talk about like, what is, what is, here's the number one question you should be asking yourself every minute of the day. What is the outcome I want in this situation? And then you choose how to act based on that outcome, which could be totally different than you were acting a minute ago. Exactly. Right. Right. We've yeah. been talking with Jeff Hall. His book is Flex, the Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. Uh, I love what you write about it, Jeff, and it's super fun to talk with you about it. And uh, we need to spend more time together. So thank you very much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.